0: Welcome to the Sound on Sound Podcast. Welcome to the September Sound on Sound Podcast, which lines up with the October issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hello there. There's a lot to look forward to in the October issue of the magazine, but first let's see what Hugh's been working on over the last week or two.
1: Well most recently I've been playing with the new Audio Engineering Associate's KU4 microphone, which is a huge ribbon with a cardioid polar pattern. It's basically a a kind of reinvention of the original ku3a microphone which was around in the late 40s and 50s Uh, used a lot in movie sound stages actually and it's just the most fabulous sounding thing but then at four thousand dollars you'd expect it to be quite impressive and it's also extremely heavy so not the kind of thing you can put on your average microphone stand so i've been playing with that recently Uh, before that i was doing some technical tests on the slate audio vcc virtual console plugin software and discovering some interesting things with that which you'll see in a review very soon Uh, what about you paul what have you been up to
2: Well, I've
0: also been playing with some rather nice ribbon microphones, in this case from Cloud. They do a passive and an active, and they also do a little box called the Cloud Lifter, which is the active electronics from their active mic put in a little inline box which is phantom powered. And that's really quite useful because if you already have a ribbon mic, which is a passive one with a low output, you can stick this inline and get 20 dBs or more of clean gain. And I find that's very useful, especially if you're using a preamplifier that's built into uh, an audio interface, because quite often those pick up interference from the fireware or USB port when you've got the gain turned right up.
1: Mm, they often have about 40 or 50 dB of gain as well, don't they? So you need a bit more than that for a ribbon usually.
0: Yeah, you're certainly up against it, even with the full gain on some of these things. So that was good. Um, I enjoyed playing with the ribbon mics, which I thought had a really good classic sound. They didn't sound like uh, an SM57 with a cushion over it, which some of the cheaper ones do. They actually had quite a bright but smooth top end, which I liked, and a very full bottom end. The other nice thing was the Noble Q Equaliser plug-in from PSP. There are actually two different versions of the Equaliser, one with an extra midsection, and it sounds just really analogue and sweet. It's a bit like a kind of Pultec on steroids, so that's one to look at. I've written up some new technique features and I've tested the new PMO5N monitors from Fostex. They perform well in a small studio environment, but now I'm packing to go back to Turkey for a while. I'll be staying at the Kilim Hotel in Dalian where I did the Studio SOS makeover that was in last month's issue, so I'll see how they've been getting on with that. Coming up in the October issue we have a wealth of practical technique features as well as many hardware and software reviews. Yes, we certainly do, Paul. There are 24 reviews in this month's edition,
1: starting with the Slate VCC console emulation plugin that we're talking about just now. There's also a review of the Mackie MR5 and MR8 Mark II active monitors, a full review of Cocker's Reaper version 4, the Digital Audio Workstation software, HK Audio Lucas Alpha PA system, Josephson C716 large diaphragm condenser mic, and the generic audio preceptor and compactor outboard dynamic processors. In the feature section, the studio SOS this month takes us to the film composer Hans Zimmer, who asked for some help sorting out the acoustics in a temporary London studio. We also look at Roger Waters' The Wall live show, how that's done. And classic tracks this month is Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And now here's Sam Ingalls to tell us about his review of the Slate
2: VCC plugin. Thanks, Hugh. There are some hardware designers whose names have passed into legend, like Rupert Neve or Bob Moog or Bill Putnam. As yet, that hasn't happened with plugin developers, but one day maybe there'll be household names too. And if that happens to anyone, my money's on Fabrice Gabriel. He's the man behind the rather wonderful EOSIS range of processors, and more recently he's teamed up with Slate Digital to produce two of the most interesting pieces of software I've seen. One was the amazing FGX Mastering Limiter, which won the Editor's Choice Award at last year's SOS Awards, and now... There's the Virtual Console Collection. Normally, if I was really impressed by a plugin, I'd prepare some audio examples for you to listen to on this podcast. But what VCC does is actually so subtle that on the podcast you wouldn't be able to hear it. So I'm going to tell you about it instead. VCC consists of two plugins called Virtual Channel and Virtual Mix Bus. And the idea is that you insert these at the top of every channel and every group in your DAW's mixer. It then adds subtle distortion and noise to emulate the behaviour of some very well-known hardware mixer designs. You can read a full review in this month's SOS, but for me, the interesting feature of VCC is not so much the effect it has on the sound as the effect it has on the mixing process. It doesn't really alter the sound of individual tracks all that much, but what it does somehow do is make them blend together more easily. With digital mixing, it can sometimes seem as though there's a frustratingly narrow sweet spot as far as the level of each track is concerned, and VCC just seems to make that sweet spot broader and to make the process of balancing tracks more forgiving. As such, it's one of the few plugins I've heard that actually makes the basic process of mixing easier and more fun. And with some of the stuff I have to mix, anything that adds a bit of fun is very welcome indeed.
3: Thanks, Sam. Now a few words from Matt. Thank you, Paul. Hi, I'm Matt Houghton, I'm Reviews Editor here at Sound on Sounds, and amongst other things, I look after the techniques features. One of the things I've been looking at this month is an article by Kate Ockenden, which is uh, it's called Face the Music, if you see it in the magazine. Um, the idea is that um, it's to introduce music theory to those of you who might be a bit scared of it. <laughs> that uh, if you're like me and you've grown up learning music through piano roll editors and Cubase and Logic and the like, then a lot of the time you instinctively know what you want to do, but you maybe don't understand why and how. Um, and that means that if you get into a musical rut, it can be a bit difficult to get out, and you end up just reaching for effects and plugins and things when maybe just little musical tricks might be a bit more appropriate. Might bring a bit more life into. Into your songs. It's written in a very accessible way, um, so although it brings in sort of theory from Schoenberg and, and other music composers and theorists, you won't find any notation in there, no staves, no anything like that. It's all described in really plain English, um, so hopefully it will enable some of the beginners out there to get a bit more from their songs without just piling on the plugins. Thanks,
0: Matt. Blue Microphones recently revealed the Reactor Microphone. It's a multi-pattern large diaphragm condenser mic and it combines Blue's proprietary preamp circuit and an innovative pattern selection method with a swivelling capsule head so that you can position it easily. It's kind of quirky looking, which is normal for blue mics. And it draws on the design of their renowned B6 capsule. And it gives a detailed top end, textured mids and a full bottom end. It's built upon their premium large diaphragm condenser capsule design. It has a Class A custom discrete preamp, and it's um, low noise, low distortion. comes with a metal carrying case for protection and storage, along with a custom-designed shock mount and a custom magnetic pop filter. So if you suffer from magnetic pops, that will sort you out. It's available for only €4.99, Euros, and it's available now from Blue Microphone Dealers. Joko
1: has announced that they're now shipping the black box BBR64 MADI recorder, which can record 64 channels. Like the original black box recorder, this version is designed specifically for the audio recording of live performances where the resulting broadcast web format files can be exported to a DAW or other mixing system for post-production. Double sample rate MADI recordings of up to 96k are possible and the unit sports both coaxial and optical MADI connections. Additionally it caters for 56 channel legacy MADI interfaces where the further 8 channels can be recorded via balanced analog line inputs for capturing things like audience reaction or general ambience, that sort of thing. The BBR64 MADI can either lock to or generate its own word clock, and it can also lock to the received MADI data stream, and the MADI input can be echoed directly to the output to ease system integration if you need to do that. Individual channels or pairs of channels can also be monitored on
0: a PFL bus. Universal Audio have added a model of the Ampex ATR-102 stereotape recorder to their portfolio of UAD platform plugins. Unlike the earlier Studer A800 multitrack recorder model, the ATR-102 plugin is intended for use on your DAW's master bus to emulate the complete signal path of a high-end analog mixing room. As with the A800, the ATR102 features various tweaks to allow the user to emulate different tape formulations, speeds, input levels, pre-emphasis and bias settings. One inch, half inch and quarter inch tape settings can be selected along with the tape type. Both record and repro signal paths can be emulated without the tape saturation if required, where the sound of the transformers in the original can also be optionally emulated. Further controls adjust the hum and the hiss as well as whale flutter and crosstalk. A fully functional demo of the ATR102 is available when you install version 6 of the UAD software, which now includes RTAS versions of all their plugins. Version 6 is also fully compatible with Apple's Lion OS X and includes support for those Brainworks plugins now developed for the UAD platform. OK, it's question and answer time, and the first question is, do I need a DI box for recording keyboards, and if so, how should it be connected? Well, Hugh, what do you think of that?
1: Uh, if we're talking about recording in a studio rather than a live stage performance, then the answer's probably not necessarily. Uh, you can certainly use a DI box, but if you've got line inputs on your interface, you can probably just connect the, the keyboards direct to your interface and record from there. The only possible problem with that kind of scenario is that Because the interface from most keyboards is unbalanced, there is a minor risk of finding yourself with a ground loop. So if you get some hum in the background, some sort of low level buzzes or hums, then probably the better solution there would be to use a DI box because one of the advantages of a DI box is that there's a transformer in the way of the signal and that breaks the earth continuity and avoids the ground loop problem. The downside is that the output from a DI box is usually at microphone level so you'd have to go into a microphone preamp so you're taking a line level signal from your keyboard knocking it down to microphone level and having to amplify it back up again. So there there may be a minor noise penalty with that route uh, although in practice it's rarely a problem.
0: And I guess that even if you're using an active DI box you still get the ground lift.
1: Yes you would, yeah.
0: Okay, so the answer to that one is you probably don't need it unless you're recording live, in which case you can also use the DI box to uh, essentially split the signal, can't you? Yes,
1: you can. Most DI boxes have a a through connection, so you can route the signal straight through to your your local amplifier so you can hear what you're doing, as well as sending a signal down to the front of house desk. The the only real advantage of using a DI box on a live stage situation uh, is that most live sound systems are set up to accept microphone signals from the stage, and it's just more convenient for the front-of-house guy to have microphone-level signals coming down the multi-core. And, of course, again, the transformers in the DI box give you that electrical isolation between your system and the front-of-house system. So if there is a fault or a problem anywhere, you're know you electrically isolated, which is is a nice, comfy feeling to
0: have. (laughs) Thanks, Hugh. So moving on, the next question is... How do digital microphones work, and what are their advantages? I mean, I'm sure you don't have to shout ones and zeros at them to make them work. (laughs) No.
1: How do they work? Well, uh, they're complicated. Basically, you have inside the microphone itself, connected almost directly to the back of the diaphragm, you have a little preamplifier, impedance converter thing, and that then feeds directly into the A to D converter, and that then sends the digital signal out down the microphone to your interface.
0: So essentially it's an analogue microphone, but the conversion happens right by the capsule, so there's no chance of picking up interference.
1: That's right. It's, it's as close as you can possibly get, and all of the signal levels are optimised inside the microphone, so there's no danger of overloading the A to D converter because the microphone manufacturers know how much output the capsule can produce, and they can design the system so that it's all completely perfectly optimised. So it's going to be as good as it can get. Uh, in the case of the Neumann digital microphone, they've got a very clever converter topology where they reckon they can actually capture audio signals with 28-bit resolution, which is very impressive, and the noise floor is extraordinarily low, so it it probably is the best quality microphone conversion you can get. There is a standardised interface now that connects digital microphones into the rest of the system, uh, and that standard interface provides a kind of phantom power, it's not actually phantom power, it's a different standard, but it sort of remotely powers the microphone in a very standardised way. Uh, so once you get into the whole digital microphone genre, it actually works very well. It connects very simply between different manufacturers' boxes,
0: uh, and it and it works extremely well. So how does all the clocking work on these two? Because, of course, if unless you've got sample rate converters on every input of your system, you need some way of locking all these mics together so that they're all working in synchronism.
1: That's right. Well, the microphones can either work from their own local internal clock in some systems, or they accept a clocking signal that comes down through this this remote powering system. And the interfaces that you connect the microphones to will either have sample rate converters in them so that you don't have to synchronise different microphones together, or they will work by sending clocking information out to all the different microphones. So different systems and different ways of connecting stuff together, really. But the clocking has been thoroughly thought about, and it's not a problem in practice.
0: So you send word clock to a single box, and that in turn synchronises all the microphones that go via that box?
1: Yes, all the box itself will generate the clock for you and send a synchronised digital output back into your mixer or your interface.
0: So I suppose the real advantage of the digital mic is when you're going to use a very long cable run as you would in a live performance situation, probably less of an issue in a small studio. Uh,
1: Yeah, there is a limit to how far you can send digits down a cable. So the advantage is not particularly there for for running digits, but the real big advantage is that you've got the highest quality converter you can get in the most ideal place to put a converter. And what you get out of the microphone is what the manufacturer wants you to have out of the microphone. So you, you kind of you avoid all of this palaver about the sound of different microphone preamps and the sounds of different converters. And all of that is kind of washed away, which for people of a certain mindset is a big advantage because it means you're getting the most transparent, accurate sound you can possibly get. For others who like the ability to tailor the sound by changing preamps and converters and things, obviously you've lost that advantage. So it swings and roundabouts. So do you see these
0: things finding their way into the project studio before too long?
1: They're still quite expensive, so perhaps not the project studio, but there have been a lot of particularly classical music recordings uh, made using all digital microphones now, which I think is quite interesting. And I I see them having a a more interesting role in the broadcast market, uh, particularly, because I think that standardisation of interface uh, might might quite appeal to the broadcast industry.
0: That certainly is interesting. I was also talking to the guy at Neumann recently, and he was saying that in Europe... Um, quite often they now specify these digital microphones for a lot of the big live touring rigs.
1: Yes I'm not surprised because digital consoles are now increasingly common in live sound rigs Um, and again having this this, uh, standardised digital interface removes so much of the stress factor of of preamp gain uh, gain structures and noise and all those kind of things that you could really just do without. And if you're going into a digital desk anyway you might as well do the
0: conversion at the front of the entire chain. Okay that's fair enough. (laughs) The final question is a little bit anorecky. It's, can I use a figure of eight mic pointing sideways to capture room ambience at the back of the room whilst micing the source also with a close cardioid mic? In other words, it's a bit like a middle and side setup, but with a big distance between the two mics and presumably no intent to decode the end result.
1: Uh, Well, yes, you can. It's basically just a spaced microphone arrangement where you've got a close mic and a distant mic, and the polar pattern of the distant mic will tend... If you angle it sideways across the room from the source, 90 degrees to the source, that uh, distant mic will tend to reject direct sound from the source and give you as much ambient sound as you can get. So yes, it will certainly work that way. You could actually decode it like an MS signal. It's not Obviously, it's not a coincident arrangement, so it's not going to give you true stereo in the way that a true MS pair would. But if you decode it as if it were MS, then you will get a kind of stereo effect, which you
0: might find quite pleasing, actually. So if you don't decode it, uh, am I right in thinking that if everything was set up symmetrically in the room, a lot of what reaches the figure of 8 microphone could cancel out, certainly at the lower frequency end, so you may need to offset it from the centre?
1: Yeah, you might lose some of the LF uh, in particular because the room reflections might be so similar on each side that they might tend to cancel out arriving at the microphone, both on the in-face side and the out-of-face side. I think at higher frequencies, even a symmetrical room, there'll be so much clutter and scattering
0: going on that i don't think you'd find that was a problem okay so it's certainly worth trying and i guess um this figure of eight mic pointing sideways would also be a good technique to use in the old-fashioned echo rooms where you have a speaker in a very reverberant room and you would face the dead side of the figure of eight mic towards the speaker
1: yes again because it would the dead side would tend to reject that direct sound which you don't particularly want if you're trying to pick up an ambient effect so yes it, it would work very well in that application
0: so if you live in a block of flats and you want to use the uh, the stairwell as a reverb chamber, that might be the way to do it. You put a speaker out there, you put a figure of 8 mic pointing sideways some distance from it and hope that nobody comes by and steals it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd hear if they stole that, wouldn't you, really? You'd hear the plop as they disconnected it. Thanks for that, Hugh. <laughs> Sound. Sound. Sound advice. Tech Talk time. The subject this time is small room problems. Of course, um, we'd all love to work in a big studio, but when you're working in a small room, and even worse than that, a small square room, the acoustics can be a real nightmare. So, what can we do to improve things? What have you found works here in the smaller room, other than choosing monitors that don't chuck out too much sub bass?
1: Well, I think that's certainly an important point. It's nice to have big monitors that you know have extension down to 30 hertz or 20 hertz, whatever. But in a room that has serious room mode problems resonant frequencies at at, at the low end putting more bass into the room just makes it worse it doesn't help Uh, and the same with, with systems that rely on a subwoofer um, or you know, adding a subwoofer even to a, a stereo system. Putting more bass into a room that already has bass problems won't help at all. And usually you, you just find that you end up with a mush and you can't tell what's going on at the bottom end. So a small monitor, and by that I mean something with a, a bass driver that's maybe 6 inches, 5 or 6 inches at the most, uh, going up to sort of 8 or 10 inches is probably too much in a small room.
0: And a, a monitor like that will typically go down to around 50 hertz and be rolling off by the time that you get down there.
1: Yeah, that's right, um, and I think that that's probably a good thing. Um, and if you then always approach it that you you trust the original source recordings base response and don't tend to fiddle with it, I think that's probably a good idea, because if you can't hear what you're doing, there's no point messing with it. So having a speaker that, that doesn't throw too much low information at you is probably a, a good thing in that sort of situation.
0: Now, in smaller rooms, we always say, where possible, have the speakers facing down the long axis of the room, because that gives you the least problems. Um, but, of course, if you've got a square room, there is no long axis... And what we found is that if you end up sitting right in the middle of the room, there's a horrible base null... There's not really a lot you can do about that, is there, apart from move away from the null.
1: Yes, that, I mean that is the problem. Where, where all the room
0: dimensions are very similar, then all of the, the
1: dips and the peaks in the standing waves that build up in, in the room across the different dimensions, they all tend to end up in the same place. And right in the centre of the room, you get this sort of black hole of, of no base at all, uh, which can be extremely pronounced. We've we found rooms in the past when we've done Studio SOS, where it really is very dramatic, that you get this this complete absence of bass in the middle. And if you move a few inches left or right, you can end up with these uh, huge peaks in bass as well, where one note is very strongly emphasised. The normal advice would be that you set up your monitoring in a room very symmetrically uh, so that reflections off the walls are are symmetrical and and that way your stereo imaging is as precise and stable as you can get it. But in a small room, sometimes that doesn't help. And actually moving the thing off centre moving it closer to one wall or the other may well help to give you a more even bass response because by moving the speakers into different positions within the room relative to to the boundaries, you get those peaks and troughs in different places and and so you get a slightly more even or at least a less lumpy bass response.
0: I've certainly found this in several small rooms and also I've found that moving the speakers further away from the end wall uh, actually helps quite a lot. I mean, where does this figure of 38% come from? Uh, we often hear that if you move the speakers or the listening position to 38% of the way down the room, that you get the least in the way of standing wave problems.
1: Yeah, it's just a figure that's that's worked out by looking at the way standing waves build up at different frequencies for different room dimensions. Uh, and you, you just end up with this 38% mark as being one of the better places in the room where you tend to get a more even distribution of modes. So that often works. I think moving a speaker away from the wall, you tend to get a dip in the low frequency response, and that can often counteract a natural uh, standing wave in the room and give you a slightly more even response. It, you can calculate these things, but in practice, it's actually easier and quicker just to move the speakers around a few inches backwards and forwards until you find the most uniform position.
0: Mm. So does that mean that if you had one of the small systems which uses, um, well they call it a sub, but in fact it's something that just gives you a a normal full range from small satellite speakers, if you have that kind of system you could have your small satellite speakers at the end where it's physically convenient, but then you could move the sub further out into the room to try and even out the base end?
1: Yeah absolutely, there's no set position where you need to put the sub, you'd have to experiment in in a particular room and and uh, find the position where it works best. And and the classic thing that that we found works in a very practical sense is actually to to initially put the sub where your chair would be, where your listening position needs to be, uh, and then sort of crawl around the room on the floor and listen for a point in that room where you get the most even bass response. And when you find that position, you then put the sub in that position and go back and sit in your chair, and hopefully you will still have a fairly even bass response. It looks a bit silly while you're doing it, but it does actually work surprisingly
0: well. It certainly does. I've tried that several times. So that could actually be a, a practical benefit of using the small sub with small satellite kind of system rather than a couple of full-range desktop speakers. Yes, it is, because it means you can put the satellite system where
1: you need to put them practically to, to be with your, your desk and your monitors and so on, Your your, your computer monitors, And where you can get a good stereo image and then you can move the subwoofer around to get a good bass
0: response. So it kind of separates those two things, which can help. Yes, certainly. And all the mid-range and high problems are easily dealt with, or certainly from the perspective of the listening position, just using two to four-inch thick foam rubber or rock wall on the sides and the other mirror points. Yes, that's true, yes. Yeah, they're not difficult to sort out at all. It's the bass end that's always the problem. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the only problem with those kind of satellite and subsystems
1: is as we said at the start that the subs can go down to an extremely low frequency and in a very small square room sometimes having those very low frequencies isn't that helpful and very few subs um, have a high pass filter option they have a low pass filter to get rid of highs from the sub but they don't have a high pass filter to get rid of the lows which is a bit of a shame really because sometimes it would be nice to to limit the base response down to say you know 40 hertz
0: or so rather than going all the way down to 30 or 20. That's very true and that's why I was specifying a small system because sometimes they call it a sub but in fact it's just to get the satellites to go down to 50 hertz in some of the smaller systems. That's right yeah some of them don't go down all that far which which can be helpful. Mm. Okay well hopefully that's helped you out a little bit. Well, once again, that's all we've got time for. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye. Thanks for listening.